Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have without a doubt one of the most intelligent strength coaches in the world, Matt Jordan. Matt is currently serving as Director of Sports Science at the Canadian Institute of Sport in Calgary. And on this episode, we will be diving into Matt's philosophy around scientific testing in performance, limb symmetry indexes, and his application of force plates in Calgary. Whilst we are all housebound from the dreaded C word that is coronavirus, Matt, if you haven't heard him speak before, will stimulate you intellectually to a different level, but with a, a practical emphasis. So I hope this episode both upskills your knowledge and passes some time productively. From myself and Ben Ashworth at Informed Performance, we hope you're all healthy, happy and safe. And without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Matt Jordan. Matt Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving up some time amongst the the chaos that the world is going through at the moment. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, it's great to, great to meet you online, and uh, excited to excited to have a chat. Just to begin with, uh, just for any of the listeners that may not have come across you just yet, could you just give a little bit of context as to uh, as, as to what you do now and a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, no, hundred percent. I. Um... So I'm a Canadian and I moved to one of our Olympic training centers uh, way back in the day. And I met a guy named Charles Pollockin, who maybe some of your listeners would know. He passed away about a year ago. Um, but Charles was a strength coach in at the Olympic training center here in Calgary, Canada. And I never even had an inkling that um, a career in sport would be a possibility for me. Uh, but met Charles and uh, he took me under his wing a little bit and, and gave me a, a start by pointing me in the right direction, gave me some good advice. And uh, before I know it, I was uh, before I knew it, I was in in, uh, in my master's, uh, uh, finishing off a, a master's of science in, in, in uh, exercise and muscle physiology and uh, working with Olympic bound athletes. And so I spent um, a good 12 years, basically four Olympic cycles working with Canadian athletes who are heading off to the Olympic games that, that put me in touch with a really good friend of mine, Stu McMillan, who now runs Altus, um, a bunch of other great colleagues and, and, and friends who were in elite sport. And, uh, essentially we had this little, uh, concrete box in the bottom of the Olympic training center in Calgary at the university of Calgary. And, uh, we would sit there and scheme and, and plan and program and, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was some excellent days in my development. And uh, as I was cresting through the Vancouver Olympic Games, I was getting, uh, you know, a little bit stale. And I think hopefully for your listeners, I mean, I think everyone's been there at some point in their life where, you know, you've been trucking along for, you know, 10, 12 years, whatever it is, and, and you're just realizing that something's missing. And, and um, I certainly was hitting a bit of a flat spot in my career. I, I was not sure uh, what my next steps were going to be. And I um, serendipitously... Uh, got lined up uh, with alpine ski racing again, uh, which was a sport I'd worked with previously in my career. And uh, at this point, though, obviously much, uh, much more experience under my belt. And um, I had a significant number of athletes with injuries that I was trying to help come uh, help get them back to sport and to performance. And um, a whole bunch of events happened, which we'll probably get into, but I uh, landed on a dual force plate system uh, completely by chance. I met a great guy named Per Agard, who's um, uh, definitely a leader in biomechanics and sports science research. And uh, one thing leads to the next, and I'm doing a PhD in medical science uh, focused on joint injury and uh, osteoarthritis. And uh, that led me down the path of uh, developing better testing methodologies to um, help athletes who've had injury, help them get back to sport, get back to performance. And 
um, find better ways to help them uh, rehabilitate and recondition after they've had injuries. And so anyways, that's long-winded. I know I'm sorry about that, but we're, we're back now to today where I am the director of sports science at the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary, one of four Olympic training centers in Canada. I oversee a team of about 10 uh, sports science, sport medicine practitioners from various areas. And uh, in addition to being on the floor, working with uh, several of our athletes who are reconditioning after injury, I'm uh, a graduate student. So I sit on research, uh, you know, research committees. Uh, we're actively doing applied sports science research uh, on a daily basis in our strength and power lab at the training center. And um, yeah, just uh, showing up to work every day and trying to learn a bit more and uh, and uh, and also realizing uh, a lot of times what I don't know about this whole game of, of uh, strength and conditioning and, and uh, reconditioning after injury. And are you doing kind of any research projects? Uh, I know you, you're conducting a few at the the institute. Are you doing any personally alongside that, like that you're a bit more deeply involved in? Or yeah, no, I am for sure. I mean, uh, one of my graduate students, Nate Morris, is just wrapping up his thesis. Um, he's got some really interesting data. Uh, what Nate did is he looked at uh, athletes who'd undergone semitendinosus autographs, which uh, your listeners will probably know. It's a common surgical procedure that they use to reconstruct a, a torn ACL. And uh, what Nate has been looking at is he's been using extended field of view ultrasound to look at the cross-sectional area of the semitendinosus muscle. And he's been doing um, uh, hamstring muscle uh, strength testing, looking at both the maximum strength ability, so looking at maximum torque output, but also looking at rate of force development or rate of torque development. And um, he's done some great work to look at the association between some of the structural deficits that occur after a semitendinosus autograph and how that impacts uh, the function of the hamstrings from the idea of how fast the hamstrings make force, which is obviously rate of force development and the, the maximum uh, torque producing capability of the hamstrings. So it's, it's a really neat project. And I just had a little glimmer of his data recently, which I, I was uh, super excited about. Uh, my other grad student, Drew Lawson, is uh, focused on uh, single leg and double leg landing uh, abilities in snowboarders and freestyle skiers. Uh, we work a lot with those sports in our at our training center. You can imagine our training center, we've got this beautiful gym with a really awesome strength lab, but the windows actually look out into a, a really cool uh, ski hill and snowboard, snowboard park that exists uh, in the northwest part of the, of the city of Calgary. And, um, you know, we are constantly dealing with these, uh, we call them quote unquote, the dude sports, but these athletes launch themselves off, you know, um, half pipes and jumps and all kinds of stuff and, and they have to absorb this energy. So a big goal for us is, uh, improving our ability to detect, uh, landing deficits in these athletes. And so Drew's doing a really interesting project looking at landing abilities and he's correlating that with hip strength. So we've managed to measure hip uh, external rotation and abduction strength using a similar setup as uh, my other grad student, Nate. And then the last project that we got going in-house, in at least, is uh, through one of our future master's students, uh, Isabel Aldrich-Witt, who's going to start up. She's a physiotherapist by training, and um, she's going to be uh, hopefully dovetailing into a PhD, uh, but she's very interested in sort of more the perspective longitudinal association between all the stuff that we measure in the strength lab and then the uh, factors that contribute to um, ACL uh, re-injuries in, in our population. So those are a few of the projects. And you know, we've always got uh, other stuff going around. I always say it's anything related to the neuromuscular system, resistance training, and how the neuromuscular system adapts to resistance training is our wheelhouse. So we've got lots of other interesting projects that we've got uh, got in the wheelhouse uh, at our at our training center. 
Something that um something that springs to mind actually, just a question off the top of my head is, you know, you mentioned the the dude sports as you phrased it. Um, you know, you can you can look at things like strength deficits, you can look at, you know, classical physiotherapy things like range of motion, um, and you can look at um jump based data to kind of try and as much as you can try and predict who's who's perhaps more at risk or less robust um to certain types of injuries, say at the knee. How do you kind of manage the uh, the chaos that is if somebody throws themselves off a big jump, you know, and they do a trick and they're rotating or they're skiing at high speed. How do you kind of manage that um, that side of trauma that can happen in such a, you know, such a wacky sport um, where the danger level is so high and it's kind of a little bit, you know, field sports are a lot more um, predictable, if you imagine, than, say, jumping off a half pipe. Yeah, I mean, great question, and and obviously that's the uh, that's the coach's blind spot, really, and or a coach practitioner blind spot, as we do, you know, you kind of go up the the, the hierarchy of I, I would just say, you know, maybe maybe in uh, in sort of uh, practical terms here, like sort of a, a hierarchy of evidence, right? You know, where most people start and stop is you bring them into a clinic environment, you watch them move. Uh, you use your experience and your clinical judgment to kind of like read into movement patterns and, and what you're observing with the naked eye in this sterile environment of the clinic. And, and you make some judgments about what's happening. Um, we move, you know, let's say one step further towards performance-based tests in the clinic environment where you're maybe doing a single leg jump for distance or, you know, some sort of uh, performance-oriented test. Obviously, the, the caveat being there that your best athletes 110% compensate uh, to be able to achieve the performance benchmark while masking their deficits. Um, then we go to a, the next level, which we try to hit at our strength power lab, which is to use uh, sophisticated equipment to be able to pinpoint these deficits. And, and when I say deficits, I mean, the goal here in my mind is quite simple as we're trying to identify uh, trainable deficits. The idea being that if I can find these things that my eye is missing um, and I can find these things by using uh, scientifically valid and reliable testing methodologies. Um, I can then optimize my approach uh, in terms of either giving recommendations or designing training programs to help these athletes bridge the gap between their previously injured state to the state that they need to be in to get back to performance. Um, and now you're coming to the highest level, which is what you're alluding to is now they leave our strength lab and they leave the confines of this, you know, um, uh, strength uh, you know, this weight room or a clinical environment, wherever you are, and now they're out on the field of play. And, and that's obviously a very, very, very different environment. And I think the only answer here and something that we're, we're spending uh, a lot of energy and resource on right now as well. Another one of our research projects is developing uh, the wearable technologies that allow us to capture movement, capture, uh, capture forces, capture um, you know, the complexities of those environments uh, using wearable technology and machine learning. So uh, uh, basically a machine learning approach to capturing this high fidelity data and um, uh, driving insights off of it. And uh, one of the companies that I've been uh, working quite closely with is a company called Plantiga, which is out of Vancouver, British Columbia. And they've developed an insole with an inertial measurement unit embedded inside of it. And, uh, you know, an inertial measure measurement unit gives you, you know, information on acceleration and, and, and uh, position. Um, so it's capturing, it's capturing uh, movement and it's capturing acceleration of, of uh, either the body or limbs in, in, as, as, as people undertake, you know, various uh, activities. And what's really, really interesting is when you get these uh, extremely intricate patterns that arise from complex movement. So you can imagine like, 
um, every time you walk, your foot traces a uh, traces a line through space as you're as you're as you're in a in a you know stance phase and through to you know swing phase and then in your gait cycle, you're you're literally tracing this elliptical circle almost or the, this ellipse through 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 space, which is going to have a pattern to it. It's going to have some variability to it. It's going to have some characteristics of it. And when you take that approach. Um, it actually is really, really, uh, really amazing what can happen. And, and we're hoping that we can, we can bridge the gap into that blind spot that you identified in the question, which is getting out there into the field of play and on the half pipe and actually measuring movement where it matters most, which is, which is out there. Yeah. And I guess then you can correlate that information with, and seeing if there's a, any predictive relationships between that and then the tests that you can do in a more traditional setting, you know, in the lab or in the, in the clinic or in the gym. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, I think that's really key. Um, I think that some of the things that we've, uh, you know, we've seen come out in the literature recently, especially around, you know, I would just say, even though it's not the standard that we try to adhere to, it's what a lot of clinicians and practitioners are are really, you know, I, I would say more relegated to is, you know, simply using the eye and the clinical judgment to be able to sort of uh, make determinations about what people, you know, what what are the risk factors for an injury. And um, I think one of the greatest uh, examples of this being maybe a, a challenge for us is a, a recently published study from um, a, a Norwegian group. I'm sure many of your listeners have, have uh, seen this paper, but they were able to look at um, uh, pre-screening in, in, uh, in, in female athletes and, and to be able to identify and let's say a, a drop landing and a, and, a, and a drop jump to be able to identify um, um, they, where they asked the, the, the clinicians to identify athletes who might be at risk for a few future ACL injury and knowing obviously at the front end, who are the athletes that went on to get hurt, they could almost do this in a way that, you know, let's just see how good the clinicians are at predicting who would be the person going on to get injured. And, you know, as, as I, I think, you know, some people sort of say tongue in cheek at the clinic, you know, practitioners are, are no, no better than a dart throwing chimp, you know, in terms of being able to really pull out with the eye, the risk factors that would be um, associated for, for, for an injury. And I would completely agree that likewise, when we get into a strength, you know, a strength lab, and now we're measuring stuff, but we're still in the sterile environment, it becomes really tricky to know, like, you know, what, what are the features of how these greatest athletes are moving, that are both allowing them to excel from a performance standpoint, um, and uh, hopefully on some level, uh, building some resilience against injury. Um, a really good friend of mine, Dr. Jeremy Shepard, who is uh, moved from Australia, he was down at Edith Cowan University and, and uh, on the, on the uh, east coast of Australia, working with uh, Surfing Australia. But he's now back in Canada working with our snowboard team. And uh, for anybody who knows Jeremy Shepard's work, he's done tremendous amount of work in surfing, trying to sort of unravel and I love how he thinks about this, but unravel the, you know, using science, unravel the, the mysteries of these complex sports, like what matters for a surfer? How do they win more competitions in a judged sport? Like what, what are the key things from a physical ability standpoint that drive performance? And on the snowboarding side, for example, he's identified that, as you would probably know, like your amplitude that you hit off a jump is super, super key. Like that's actually one of the key things that gives, um, that comes into judging and comes into uh, your score. And so for snowboarders, you're trying to, you're trying to get as much height as humanly possible because that's what drives performance. But then obviously from our end is, okay, now that you can achieve these crazy heights off of a jump, 
you've got to absorb that energy at some point and dissipate it so that you don't hurt yourself. And that's where, you know, I think, you know, to your point is if we can find some associations between what goes on in the real world of their sports with, um, you know, scientifically valid and reliable testing methodologies that can be done off, off snow. Um, now we're in a position where maybe we can start to unravel things that we can address with training that can hopefully improve performance and build some resiliency. No, completely. And, you know, you're very well known as a, as not only as a strength coach, but also, uh, in your kind of scientific approach to how you, how you do your, your craft as a strength coach. Um, I'm aware that you, you've collected a massive amount of data around force profiling and limb symmetry at the Canadian Institute of Skiers. Um, so you're quite able to compare athletes and correlate what's in front of you, perhaps with injuries or performance relationships. Let's say you kind of didn't have a big backlog of uh, profiles and data to compare with previous moments in time or against other athletes. How, if you're working with uh, a new sport, maybe a new sport for you at, at least, would you approach deciding what matters in building your performance tests and you know your monitoring batteries? Um, well, you know, I think that's a great question. Uh, you know, with with regard to um, um, the challenges of the world that we live in, I mean, how, how would I go about that? First and foremost, uh, you've got nothing if you don't have trust. Um, and and I, I've I've learned this. I, I learned this lesson, you know, repeatedly in my career. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter how much of a background I think I have, um, or how much of a background that athletes who've worked with me think I have. If I'm starting to work with a new athlete and that athlete doesn't think that I have their best interest in mind, or if they don't care about the things that I care about, um, fundamentally all bets are off. So I still come back to the fact that to really do a good job in this space and, and, you know, again, being in the context of trying to figure out how to help an athlete or a team in, in the environment of using science to support my practice um, I have a person at the other end that that needs to have a human relationship with me. And um, I'm very cognizant of that because when I sort of introduce these ideas to an athlete, I can, you know, I, I, I realize that there's a limit to what uh, what I'll be able to do if someone doesn't doesn't trust and believe in what I what I have to, to bring to the table. So that's first and foremost. Um, I think secondly, you know, we we can turn to some general um, uh, general rules of thumb. And I think that that's, you know, rules of thumb or heuristics are, are tough to, um, uh, are tough to, um, um, are tough to, to, to validate, but let's just take the example. Like we've now that we've collected and we've actually published this. So I think that, um, you know, in a, in a situation where, you know, let's just say you didn't have a big body of knowledge on a given group of athletes, um, you know, you go to the literature and, you know, we published recently uh, from, I think it was over um, um, a thousand different jump tests in non-injured athletes uh, in sports where there's no preferred left or right side. We published the distribution of left versus right asymmetries. And, you know, we, we kind of reported a statistic and they're super descriptive. It was no, there was no predictive uh, nature to this, but we, we simply said, you know, um, less than two, you know, less than a, you know, a few percent uh, of tests um, uh, were uh, above twenty uh, percent asymmetry and left versus right asymmetry in um, what's called the uh, eccentric deceleration phase of a jump. So this is a phase of movement where the athletes unloaded, they're dropping down. You can imagine doing a jump; they're dropping down into the bottom position, and at some point they have to um, they have to reverse their downward acceleration so that they can come back up off the ground. 
and that phase of movement, um, as an example, uh, you know, when you when you look at, at that report, um, that, that would allow a practitioner to say, like, let's say you're walking into a brand new team and you look at the distribution of asymmetries in a jump test, for example, um, and let's say that you do happen to stumble up upon some athletes who are 10, 12% asymmetry, and then you've got a couple who are 20% asymmetry, you could contextualize that by saying, wow, that's a really um, unusual finding or observation. We don't know whether or not that is uh, going to be associated or, or put that athlete at greater risk for injury. Let's just leave that off the table. But if we just operated, operated off the heuristic, now you're in a position where you could say, okay, well, you know, um, it's obviously something that's uncommon in general based on what we see in the literature. Um, and, you know, who knows, that might change as people put more data out. But for now, let's just assume it is. Uh, but more importantly, now that you're armed with that information, not only is this two or three people that have 20% asymmetries uncommon in general, but it would appear to be un uncommon for this group of athletes. And knowing that, I mean, it's like most things when you come down to being a practitioner, you know, you, you, you operate on the basis of trying to find things that you can address with training. And, and I think that we're, we're, we're okay understanding the inherent challenges of trying to predict injury. What we really care about is not so much predicting injury, but finding things that we can change with programming and exercise and refining our prescription of exercise to make it you know, specific to what the individuals need. And so that's an example, I think, of where, you know, again, a more of a heuristic approach, but it allows you at least to have an operating framework to use some of this information. And then the final thing I would say along this, and we spoke quite a bit about this over, um, you know, uh, various, various, uh, various, uh, uh, you know, presentations and forums, but um, I call it the uh, find your pan evaporation. And uh, the story about pan evaporation is a documentary I watched many years ago, but it was about climate change. And they talked about in this particular documentary about scientists who had, who had observed these anomalous findings in the United States, uh, these uh, temperature spikes, which are, are relatively unheard of. And as the story goes, you know, the, they're, they're talking about how they've unraveled this. And one thing they go back to is this, this, this concept of pan evaporation where um, farmers all around the world uh, uh, record uh, how much water evaporates from a pan in a 24-hour period. It's a really simple metric. You need a pan, you need some water, and you just need to be consistent. So I, I kind of bring it back to this notion. You want to monitor the simple things over time in a consistent fashion. And by doing these consistent things well, even though they're not the fanciest things, um, what I found is that, you know, you slowly start to grow a body of knowledge. And so uh, I guess my final point to, to answer your question, in addition to trust and using some heuristics, uh, you got to have some patience and you got to have some wherewithal to find those simple things and, and to kind of drill down on the things that matter for that environment so that you can measure those things. So you measure what matters. Um, and hopefully change what matters uh, as time goes on through 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 the process of um, of building that um, body of knowledge. Hmm. And you, you mentioned symmetry within that, um, so it's probably a good segue to that now. Um, we need the ability in our biologic or athletic systems to be asymmetrical, um, or we need the capacity to be adaptable and compensate. But also conversely, we also um, as coaches and clinicians try to iron out asymmetries that exceed a certain bandwidth in other contextual situations. How, how do you kind of determine um, what's perhaps a useful asymmetry versus a potentially problematic one? I know, you know, if you've got an athlete where you've got a, a data anchor or like a baseline of what they've been like and some history, you can see a trend of symmetry and decide whether that's good or bad. 
But if you've got, say, a new athlete or somebody you haven't worked with as much in front of you, how do you kind of make that distinction between, I know it's not good and bad, but you know what I mean? Something that could yeah. be a problem in the future or, or something that's, you know, natural from their sport. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, I think you're, you're touching on a, you're touching on a really big question and, you know, I, I have always, uh, actually, and I just exchanged an email yesterday with a, with a friend of mine, Nico Berg, he's a physiotherapist from uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And we were talking about this very idea and, you know, I mean, I guess the challenge here is that I, I am, I'm, a a sports science, uh, human performance, uh, exercise physiology background. Um, I don't come from a medical background and I don't come from a physiotherapy background, but I have worked a lot and very closely with some excellent physiotherapists. And what I would say is that when I think about a limb symmetry index, so the idea of achieving symmetry, I typically appraise the idea of symmetry. And uh, when I appraise the idea of symmetry, I do so in the context of uh, uh, abilities like output, like strength, power rate of force development. So I'm thinking about metrics and measures that really truly capture the output of the of the of the limb. Um, so you know the three variables I just listed are the ones that you know we often will attribute a limb symmetry index to in our in our strength and power lab, you know, max maximum strength, rate of force development, and let's say maximal muscle power. Um, here the goal would be is that your output from one side to the other is roughly the same. And I think that the benchmark that we often see in the literature is, you know, within 10% side to side. And, and the reason I would, I would say that in the uh, post ACL injury case is, um, you know, a decent, uh, decent body of work, but more recently a paper that was done. Uh, I thought it was a really nice paper. It was well done uh, uh, by a, uh, by a last author's name is Grindham. And uh, they followed people after ACL reconstruction and, and looked at factors that uh, were associated with re, re- injuries. And achieving a limb symmetry index of higher than 90%, so being as close as you can in terms of your strength uh, and obviously having that difference side to side less than 10%, um, it was a, was a, pr- a predictor of, of uh, a successful return to sport after ACL injury. And so with that notion in mind, um, I think when we are talking about strength, when we're talking about RFD, when we're talking about muscle power, we can talk about a limb symmetry index. Now, the challenge now comes to movement asymmetries. And I had these great, great conversations when we first started looking at symmetry or asymmetry, uh, talking to one of my mentors that I, um, I, I, uh, I, I snuck back under his wing uh, as an older, at this time, an older, not old, old, but like later in my career. Uh, it's another thought I have is that I think, you know, we should always be seeking mentorship, uh, no matter what stage of our careers we're in. But uh, I went back under the wing of a, a guy named Dr. Walter Herzog, who's, I mean, in my mind, he's, uh, and, I, and it doesn't even matter uh, when I say my mind, I think that most people in the, in the field of biomechanics would say that he is, he is obviously a very, very influential person in the 20th and the 21st century with his work. Uh, studying uh, muscle mechanics at a subcellular level and unraveling how muscles work. I mean, this guy's a, a brilliant scientist. But what I love about Walter is he's a former track and field coach. That's he's he's a Swiss uh, Swiss background, but he's a track and field nut. He loves cross country skiing. He loves the Olympics, and he and I would spend lots of time just shooting the breeze about athletes and performance and human movement really from a practical pragmatic standpoint. So this is a guy who can dance from, 
you know, the level of a Sarkomir right up to human performance and, you know, kind of inferring his knowledge base, his vast knowledge base in biomechanics uh, towards um, uh, what we we watch in, in uh, athletic expressions. Um, and talking with Walter, he, he would say, Matt, imagine you're standing in front of a room with 100 people um, and you ask them all to do a jump um, um, uh, or a series of jumps. Um, imagine this room has no history of injury. What would you expect on each single jump? And uh, the the reality is, is you wouldn't expect anybody to be perfectly symmetrical. Like that's not like to your point. It's the fact that we have some variability in how we move that actually makes us adaptable to unforeseen challenges and to um, being able to adjust. Right. So jump by jump, our hypothesis, our hunch would be. Well, you're always a bit asymmetrical, but the whole point is that if this group of people that are previously non-injured start to do multiple jumps, our suspicion is that because of the nature of how we do have variability in how we move, that on average, um, on average, people display low asymmetry and on average, the group displays low asymmetry. But if you look on a jump by jump basis or an individual by individual basis, uh, what we would surely expect to see is some asymmetries because we know they're normal. And Walter published a beautiful paper back in the 80s uh, looking at asymmetries in um, human locomotion and found tremendous variability in, in terms of the level of asymmetry. He found out coefficients of variation up to 13,000% and truly 13,000% in various phases of walking. So we know that that's, that that's, um, that that's a part of human movement. And so uh, I think that's an important notion is that when we start talking about human movement that's complex, we have to we have to think about asymmetries as being a natural, normal part of the equation and something that probably is actually really important. Now, on the other hand, suppose you're in the same room and now instead of having a whole group of non-injured individuals, you've got uh, people in the room that have uh, a previous history of an ACL injury. And let's say people are on average 12 to 18 months post-surgery. Now the hunch changes a little bit. What we would expect on a on an individual basis and as a group is that again there's asymmetries. But number two is that the asymmetries are no longer variable in the sense that they shift between limbs over multiple movement cycles. What we now expect to find, and this was one of our hypotheses early on when we started our research, is that as a group, um, instead of displaying sort of more uh, more symmetrical movement by consequence of how people average out we now expect to see systematic asymmetries in the group. And sure enough, that's you know kind of the premise of a lot of the work that we initially started on in terms of our methodologies of using dual force plates to assess jump asymmetries is we're trying to capture complex movement and we're trying to view asymmetries not like we would with a limb symmetry index, but we're trying to view asymmetries as a normal, natural part of human movement. And we're trying to capture that nuance. And then we're trying to uh, identify when people have lost that normal expression of asymmetry, whether that be high asymmetry or whether it be, uh, let's just say, less variable asymmetry. So your asymmetries are below 10%, but you tend to load one limb specifically in one phase of movement and another limb in in the other phase of movement, where now that normal interlimb variability has been uh, suppressed. As a as a coach, when you're in front of an athlete and you see them say, let, let's just say that as an example, it's a jump, you're watching them jump and you see um, perhaps less symmetry than you would normally. Do you, does that trigger you to intervene or question things that day? Or do you tend to then, based on what you just said, kind of see how that 
symmetry A, symmetry evolves over a few days or a few weeks? Is there kind of time frames that guide your decision on when to intervene with the asymmetry that you see? Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's really, really important. And, you know, I, I, I sort of, I, I kind of take the, 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 um, the approach with almost every, you know, situation I'm in from a, from the standpoint of working with an athlete is you're kind of like Sherlock Holmes where you're trying to pick up clues. And so, you know, when you see, and we know that it's, an, uh, I always like to call it, uh, an, uh, N equal one game, you know, you're really worried about the single person over time. So it's not whether that, what the person is showing you is good or bad. It's kind of like, is it good or bad for them? That's the, no, that's the notion here. Um, and certainly we've had situations where, you know, an athlete comes in and presents with, you know, uh, 10% asymmetry on a given day, or let's just call it 11%. Um, but, but what's really interesting when we start to map this out, and that's one of the advantages of our environment, the so-called pan evaporation approach, right? We're, we're measuring these simple things over time, consistently and one of those simple tests that we're just able to do on a weekly basis is the uh a counter movement jump test and a squat jump test on a dual force plate system and we've also uh, got our high-speed video cameras rolling as well you know by capturing this this information in a, in a systematic way over time and not just relying on these single one-off tests it's really interesting to note that the athlete who comes in on the day one and shows an 11 percent asymmetry let's say you know bias a little more to the right side very likely within a couple of jump tests will show a 10% asymmetry towards the other side. And so when you start to map this out over time, if you can visualize a center black line that has the number zero associated with it, meaning that there is no asymmetry present, um, you start to see this black dot, which represents the average asymmetry over a series of jumps, let's say anywhere from five to 10 jumps. And we're calculating literally a mean asymmetry for a given phase of movement we start to see that this black dot starts to float above and below the center black line. It's never, well, occasionally it falls bang on the center black line, but it's like over time, sometimes you're a little more right side dominant. Sometimes you're a little more left side dominant and where we would begin to kind of question whether or not there's something there that we need to deal with is now when we see a trend and that's, that's really um, the, the cool thing about taking a quote unquote pan evaporation approach is now with a trend, you can start to say, oh, wow, this person is certainly trending in a direction. And you can begin to identify patterns that are atypical. But this it's, it's less of a, and I guess this is important and hopefully answers the question, it's less of a off a single test when it comes to movement asymmetries. With movement asymmetries, you're trying to identify a pattern. And so for a pattern to kind of present itself, you really need a series of tests to be able to kind of identify that something's there that, you know, maybe is is not like other patterns that have been observed before either for that athlete or for the group of athletes that they belong to um or maybe to the bigger body of knowledge that is is coming out around uh, around uh, uh movement asymmetry it sounds like um kind of we almost in certain in certain situations have to have that patience to allow um the athlete or the body's uh, movement system if you like to sway back and forth over that dotted line within a bandwidth but do you, do you yeah. think kind of practitioners sometimes um, almost don't allow the natural overcorrection and instead they overcorrect it with their interruption of that? Uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's absolutely uh, uh, something that I've observed and, you know, where, where I find this particularly problematic is that, um, you know, anybody who's re- read uh, uh, some of the um, um, uh, work done by uh, 
Daniel Kahneman and, and Traversky, who are two behavioral economists who won the Nobel Prize and, you know, talked a lot about why are humans so hard to predict? You know, like why and why are we like borderline irrational when you think about it? And he says, you know, we're we're these uh, deterministic creatures living in a probabilistic world. So we believe in fate and luck and all these things. But at the end of the day, our world around us is highly uh, probabilistic in terms of what happens. And they identify all kinds of interesting uh, things like regression to the mean, you know, like if you have if you have uh, if you have a really, really good test out of the blue. Um, and then you go out the second time regression to the mean means you kind of, re, you know, regress back down to, to, to the average of what, of what you do. Right. So these, this is this idea here that these one off, you know, you kind of want to, you kind of want to look at things as a, a body of a body of knowledge in these cases, rather than these single, these single discrete events. Um, but I think, uh, you know, importantly, uh, when, when, when they, when they talk about some of our other challenges, they, they, they introduce these different type of biases and, you know, one of them they call the proximity bias, right? So you tend to remember more what's recently been presented to you rather than what's been presented to you, um, you know, uh, many, many months ago. And and the challenge I have around this is that you'll often see practitioners who, let's say, go do a weekend course. You know, I mean, we see this all the time. You go to a weekend course, that person provides you a framework and some things to look for. And now, you know, lo and behold, when you show up to work on Monday, everybody's got this thing that that person was talking about, you know, let whatever whatever, whatever, uh, impairment or, or ailment that you figure is, is, you know, a common, just, you know, fit that one in the box. But, you know, you, you basically show up on Monday colored by this recent experience where now everything seems to look like that. And again, my challenge with this is that when we are colored by our own bias and when we don't really step back and ask the question, wow, that's interesting. I wonder, like, I wonder why we're seeing this, like what, what could be driving this rather than, you know, this mindset of going in there and trying to fix everything. Um, I think that's a, that's a really important starting point uh, to being able to kind of unravel, you know, where we want to interject and where we don't. I, I like to joke about it. You know, my, I, I walk my dog quite a bit and, and, you know, when my dog hurts himself, he, let's say he hurts his shoulder, you know, you rarely have a dog physiotherapist trying to correct how he moves, moves, uh, you know, at the dog park. You know, you don't, I mean, I, I say rarely because I do think they're actually physical therapists that maybe are correcting dog movement. And I don't want to make the assumption that there isn't. Um, but let's just assume it's uncommon. I mean, at least I've never experienced it. Instead, what tends to happen is my, my dog goes out there with his pain and, you know, limps around a little bit. And, but he self-organizes, you know, he self-organizes around the pain. He self-organizes around his limitations. Uh, he self-organizes for the environment he, he's, he's in. And, you know, ultimately, as he heals up, you know, again, he self-organizes towards, you know, uh, a more typical way that a dog runs or walks. And I think in a, in a similar way, you know, we, we, tend to, we tend to hit that first rung on the ladder of watching movement with our eye, you know, being colored by recent experiences that we've had from, you know, courses or people that we've listened to. And we apply these sort of arbitrarily constructed, you know, uh, ideas uh, as a lens, uh, through which we see human movement. And, um, you know, again, I'm not saying that everybody who does that is, is, uh, out to lunch, uh, nor am I saying that, um, that we shouldn't be doing that. In fact, you know, I, I apply those, those ideas as well in, in my, in my day to day. But again, I, I look at them as ideas. And, uh, I think that's where, you know, this, this idea of looking at human movement in terms of a little bit more of complexity and, and a sort of a self-organizing system that's in front of you, uh, probably helps steer us away from the the rush to be able to be like, oh, you know, 
I, you know, look at this person presenting with this thing, they've got X. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a classic blunder that we find ourselves in. And it's interesting to know too, that, you know, challenge that. So let's video it. Let's see if it's there tomorrow. Let's see if it's there the next day. Um, you know, these are all things to me that when you, when you start to measure human movement, it certainly ups the ante to, to confirm that what we're seeing is actually real and it's consistent and that it's evident of something that we should, that we should, we should, uh, we should aim to change bit of a topic change but i'm really aware that you've used dual force plates very extensively and um and, and do quite a lot quite a lot of education around that um you know dual force plates can tell us a lot of the values that we express as a system um but we can't just kind of use that absolute number to fully understand the biomechanics because the force plates are kind of telling us the total value of say the left system in comparison to the complex right system do you use things like IMUs and EMGs and motion capture to try and understand the, you know, the inverse dynamics and in individual segments that contribute to a kinetic chain? Or do you think there's more value in kind of just seeing the total output of, you know, one half of the body rather than going really segmental? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's there's two parts to the question there. There's, um, you know, I'll go back to the idea of pan evaporation. So what are the simple things you can collect over time that are both scientifically valid and reliable enough to be able to be relevant to a high performance environment? What are those things that you can do in the world in which we live? And, you know, for example, on a Monday morning, on a given Monday morning in June, we might have 30 or 40 athletes come through the strength lab and they'll do a five counter movement jump test, you know, and that's, that's, um, obviously, um, we need to be efficient with our time and we need to be efficient with the athlete's time. And to that end, um, we're often in that environment. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're unable to capture, um, uh, the kinematics, uh, in, in, in a, in a, in an efficient way. And, and by, you know, by efficient, I mean that we're, you know, it would take us a tremendous amount of time to do that on any given day. So I do think it's important. It's just normally that stuff comes in for us when, we have a specific question that's now coming out. Um, so there, I would differentiate, you know, what is, what is your monitoring strategy? You know, what, how are you monitoring your athletes and monitoring people in your environment over time, which can be uh, driving scientifically uh, relevant questions. And uh, what are you doing more from a more in-depth uh, research dive into, to uh, human movement that may require more extensive uh, methodologies. So, you know, for example, one of the things that we were really interested in a few years ago was how fatigue affects not only vertical jump asymmetries, but also uh, muscle activity patterns, uh, looking at the quadriceps and hamstrings. So there's an example where we took a deep dive. And, you know, in this case, we're not talking about kinematics. We're talking about measuring the, the muscle myographic signal. But in this case, you know, we're... we're um, you know, we're using surface uh, electromyography and we're combining it with the dual force plates and high-speed video, and we're, we're taking a deep dive. The challenge there, it was probably, you know, 45 to 50 minutes per athlete to get them in and out of the testing session. It was also, you know, uh, data processing time and all the other, those other things that go alongside that. So clearly not something that could be done on, a, on an athlete monitoring standpoint, but uh, something that we could do um, for a deeper dive and something that we could also use then if we needed to take a deeper dive for some reason, because we suspected something uh, was occurring that might be uh, warranting that level of uh, detail. So is am I right in thinking the force plate can, uh, from a movement perspective, at least is kind of this um, first portal that maybe flags that something is different for you to then 
go away and yeah. look at why and what could be going on in more detail afterwards. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, I think, you know, and the story about literally, I mean, stumbling on the setup that we did was was purely, purely, purely by chance. I mean, we had we had uh, sort of been unable to afford uh, uh, a good set of force plates in our training center previously. And so we were relegated to, you know, uh, equipment that was way, way more noisy and uh, wasn't giving us anywhere near the accuracy and precision we needed to be able to make decisions off of. And we just happened to be at a conference down in Colorado Springs where we met uh, a guy named Bill Sands, who runs the U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee Training Center. Um, uh, uh, he, run, he ran their, their athlete performance lab. And he introduced us to this company called Pasco. And Pasco is a company that does uh, high school physics, um, class equipment. Like, you know, they sell all kinds of sensors and, and he's like, Oh, stuff's affordable. And, um, you know, you can get a dual for, you can get a, sorry, you can get a force plate for 500 bucks and you can get their software for two grand. And, you know, I was like, well, that, that is actually in our price point. So, you know, we could afford this and, and legitimately coming back to Canada, our challenge was that the one force plate, if you can imagine a, a, a tile on the floor, that's about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. The problem with this force plate was that it just wasn't big enough. Like you couldn't, you couldn't have an athlete jump on a single plate. So we thought, well, what are we going to do? We'll buy two and then we can put one under each foot and we can plug them both in and we can add up the signal to, to measure the ground reaction force of the body center of mass. Cause that's really when force plates are classically used, they're not classically used to measure what's happening from the left and the right. What they're, what they're measuring is the ground reaction force of the body center of mass. And so if you go back to, you know, some of, you know, Newton's second law of motion is force equal mass is equal to mass times acceleration. You know, the ground reaction force is measuring the force that's acting on the body as the body is, you know, going, you know, the body is, um, um, you know, uh, involved in, in, in a particular type of movement, in this case, a jump. And, and really, when we break it down to left and right, it's the fraction of the total ground reaction force that is occurring from the left and the right side. It's the fraction that, that, that we're measuring. And so it's, it's the contribution of the left to the, to the, the, to the total force that we, we care about, or the contribution of the right to the total force. Now, we in our processes, uh, when we were looking at our asymmetry index, we certainly don't calculate our asymmetry index according to that. But recently, there's been some great work by uh, Chris Chris Bishop, Paul Reed, a few others out there in the world who uh, talked about different ways to slice and dice, let's say, asymmetries from a vertical jump. Um, and and I think that's an important consideration here is that you know we're we're using the dual force plate system as a as a representation of that and and really if i go back to those days where we first got that dual force plate system into our into our our weight room very organic very practical i was rehabilitating athletes at the time speed skaters and skiers and whatnot and it was really helpful for me as a strength coach who is trying to correct left versus right strength and power deficits I found it really valuable to put an athlete on these plates and have them jump and squat or do a power clean because when athletes were hurt, lo and behold, the fraction that would be contributing towards the total force of the body center of mass from the injured side would typically be less than the other side. But that wasn't always the case. Sometimes we'd find the exact opposite. It'd be like, holy cow, in this phase of the movement, it's actually the injured limb that's, that's contributing a higher fraction of the, of the total ground reaction force. Of, of of the body center of mass, and so we would we would um, 
you know, we would have these anomalies, but by and large, you know, when people were recovering, we would see number one, that there would be a, a difference between, between the limbs. And number two is that through training, we would often see these, uh, these differences go down, they would subside and they would, they would go down to kind of more typical levels that we would see in non-injured, uh, uh, athletes. And the third thing is that these asymmetries were really specific to the phase of movement. So I could identify an eccentric versus concentric uh, movement asymmetry. And uh, lo and behold on that one is if I targeted my training towards addressing these movement asymmetries in a specific way, either through um, complex movement or through strength training, um, it would also help accelerate the recovery of, of, of these, uh, of these interlimb differences. Um, so, you know, really, again, you know, I think I'd, I'd hate to say that we sort of started off on this by saying that this was what was going to happen. It was quite organic and literally the pan evaporation idea using the dual force blade system was just by chance, uh, but ultimately it proved to be really useful. And, and I think that's maybe the lesson here that I always try to share is, you know, you're, you're a coach who's nurturing your instincts or a practitioner who's nurturing your instincts. But if you're really curious about what the heck's going on, you're kind of interested in looking for facts and it, looking for facts means that you're, you're using science and you're using principles of science to develop uh, scientifically valid and reliable testing methodologies with good equipment that gives you the accuracy and precision that you need. And you're integrating this into your practice. And as you integrate this stuff into your practice, it's not that it's replacing any of the things you do. It's that you're nurturing your instincts, but looking for these facts. And that's sort of the process that allowed us to kind of stumble on that dual force plate system. Um, but I would fully recognize that it's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, a little bit more complex or maybe not complex is the wrong word. It's a little more complicated than just saying, you know, uh, how different is one side compared to the other, uh, just by virtue of some of the things you've already identified, including, you know, also um, understanding that the contributions of the different joints and body positions are all factors that are going to affect the ground reaction force. Yeah. Well, I think we're I think we're on the clock. I could I could genuinely ask you about a thousand more questions about uh, nuances around jumps and uh, and testing and collection. But Matt, thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much in depth information and uh, and and also really kind of broad philosophy that you kind of pull into all your answers and your thinking. So yeah, thank you for coming on the show and thanks for sharing. Oh no, I really appreciate it, Andrew. It was a, a pleasure to talk talk with you and and hopefully um, yeah, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do it again in the future. Yeah, no doubt. And just before you go, where can um, where can people find you? Where's the best place for people to sort of track your activity? Yeah, no. Uh, so number one, um, you can go to, uh, I've got a website, www.jordanstrength.com. Um, I specialize mostly in online education for coaches, sport medicine professionals and practitioners, and uh, in speaking engagements. So, you know, uh, whether it's conferences or professional development type opportunities, um, you know, that's a, an area of, of interest of mine and, um, and, and something that you can learn more about through my website. Um, also, you can join my mailing list uh, if you want to be up to date on courses that I'm offering and, and you want to be uh, sort of uh, aware of, of what's happening. Um, I'm also on Twitter, um, not, not a ton, uh, but my handle's at, at Jordan Strength, same, same handle as for my Instagram. Um, and if you want to follow me there, that's great. I, I tend to not post a, a ton, but when I do, it's usually something that I care about, I think, I think is relevant. Um, so, you know, uh, please, uh, yeah, if you're interested, please uh, feel free to follow me there. And 
Um, the last little point is that uh, the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary, which, uh, as I mentioned, is one of four Olympic training centers in Canada, we offer um, strength and conditioning internships. And I also uh, uh, take on graduate students. We offer them a really sweet deal. We uh, bring them on from interns into scholarship sports science practitioners. We actually pay them a stipend for their graduate work. And they get to have uh, an academic uh, uh, experience under myself and then typically Walter Herzog, the, who's, who often co-supervises them. And they get a professional experience uh, at our training center where um, they are actually embedded with with a team and, and working with some of our best coaches. So it's a really cool opportunity. Um, and uh, absolutely, if anybody out there who is listening to this thinks that that might be of interest, you pop to my website, send me a message, uh, an email. Um, or, or keep your eyes posted on uh, on social media because I will always release um, things that are happening as they happen. God, it's it's refreshing to hear actually that internships of that quality exist, where you know people are really well looked after in and amongst their development um, compared oh, to yeah. maybe some of the old compared to the old school days where you gave up a lot of time for free and maybe didn't get a totally. job at the end of it. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I I always lament and 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 both celebrate the fact that when I started my career as a strength and conditioning coach, uh, true story is I actually worked in my first payment that summer was a team jacket, and uh, I worked uh, night shifts as a hospital security guard to pay my bills, and then during the day I would coach uh, for free, and you know, I always felt that you know uh, we could do better for our profession, and I think part of that is that. Uh, we want really good students. And just like it's super competitive out there to find an internship, it's also super competitive to find good students and to find good people. So we have changed the game a little bit how we operate. Um, you know, we do not do free internships. We pay our, we pay our interns uh, 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 like uh, just above the, the minimum wage that, that, the, that, the, that our, our province uh, allows. We, we give them, uh, you know, we give them money to live on we give them uh, good support and as a scholarship practitioner you come in with support and uh, we just really believe you know like and, and I think this is important right like we want you know we want to make it better we want to make it better for people moving forward and and for sure for me like internships and mentorships like they're, they've they been so critical for me in my career that I just know I have to give back and, and that's one of the ways we try to give back yeah and in a brilliant way as well yeah I appreciate that well, Matt, thank you. Yeah, thanks again, mate. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, it's great to chat to you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. I'd like to thank Matt for coming on today's show again. And if you're anything like me, you may want to replay this episode or make a couple of notes. Without a doubt, every time I listen to Matt speak or present, I upgrade my knowledge and approach. So always appreciate any content that comes from him. During this extraordinary time, we will try and get as many brilliant guests on as possible to keep pushing the performance and sports medicine conversation forward. So keep your eyes peeled on our Instagram page, Inform Performance, or on our Twitter page, Inform Pod, if you're enjoying the show. And don't forget to hit subscribe to support our efforts. But stay safe and healthy, and thank you for listening to the Inform Performance podcast.